You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. All right, we are underway. This is Glenn Lowry uh, with the Glenn Show at BloggingHeads.tv. I'm a professor of economics and of international and public affairs at Brown University and the Watson Institute of International and Public Affairs uh, here at Brown Sponsors, uh, the Glenn Show. And I'm with John McWhorter, my uh, frequent conversation partner. He's professor of the humanities at Columbia University. He and I are the black guys at bloggingheads.tv. <laughs> and we are back. Uh, only a few days ago, I think four days ago, you and I recorded a conversation about a documentary film, uh, The Trayvon Hoax, uh, that was produced, uh, directed by Joel Gilbert, a filmmaker uh, an investigative journalist, uh, and we opined here that while we didn't know whether the claims in the film were true or false, we thought that they were sufficiently credibly presented by Gilbert in the medium that we saw. We saw the film and we saw a book that Gilbert has written based on the research he did for the film. It was sufficiently credible that it shouldn't be dismissed out of hand and that it was worthwhile taking on board the claims that were being made because of the profound implications we thought following from those claims were they to be true. Uh, we also uh, exploited, I guess I could say, the fact that um, George Zimmerman, who was the uh, person charged and the killer of Trayvon Marston and charged with his murder um, uh, and acquitted at trial, uh, has brought a lawsuit based on the evidence provided in the film against the Trayvon Martin family, the lawyers who represented him, uh, the family, the pro- prosecutors who brought the case against George Zimmerman. Zimmerman has brought this lawsuit. That's a, a fact. There's no disputing that the lawsuit has been brought. Uh, and it's in the news. It's been reported on by major news agencies because it's newsworthy. Uh, and the lawsuit is rooted in the claims made in the film, which makes the film newsworthy, and we thought it worth discussing. So we did. We did. That was part one of this conversation. We are now in part two of this conversation because blowback is upon us. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have both received numerous uh, critical responses. The comment section at uh, bloggingheads.tv on our posts and the comments. Which I did read this time, folks. I read them. John usually doesn't, but he did this time. And also at YouTube, there's a different set of comments at YouTube. Oh, I forgot to. Oh, I'll have to get to that. Very different audience. The YouTube commenters are relatively more conservative than the blogging heads commentators. Whenever you go to that, it's just all praise, which isn't as interesting in a way, although. Great well, this time it's not all praise, but it but it's true that the YouTube people appreciate us because uh, we are iconoclast and we are black people inclined from time to time to make arguments and to say things that they are. That is the YouTube audience are mm-hmm. uh, are uh, not often finding black people to say. So they appreciate us for that reason, which is not exactly helpful. <laughs> Since, uh, yeah. Nice, but you know you don't learn as much because you're waiting for a challenge. That's all. Yeah, it's two different communities of people, both of whom follow us and react to what it is that we have to say. Uh, And those comments are mixed, and many of them are praiseworthy, but some of them are really quite critical. And I wanted to get us started here in this part two conversation, John, by just sharing one piece of feedback. This was not a public comment posted. This was a private letter written to me and you by a viewer who I will not name. And he says, dear professors Lowry and McWhorter, I'm sharing the entirety of his comment because it's pertinent to what we're doing here in part two, which is assessing 
what we did in part one. And can we, can we identify this person's occupation or is that even too much? Because uh, I like his occupation. Uh, do I know his occupation? Uh, he's an associate I mean, professor of philosophy somewhere. Yeah, a philosophy professor wrote both of those. Anyway, yeah. So. He says, I should preface this by saying what a big fan I am of The Glenn Show and your discussions there. I've been a watcher for a couple of years now. I wanted to write with some concerns about your discussion last week about the Trayvon Hoax book and documentary. I'm cautious about expressing an opinion given that you've both read the book and watched the film, and I have it. If it were a big deal to me whether Zimmerman is guilty, I would read the book and make up my own mind about the issue. What is a big deal to me is your credibility. I think the two of you play an important role as members of the Intellectual Dark Web, the IDF, uh, who have recognition from mainstream academia. academia. I'm worried about the reactions you might be courting with this, so I wanted to make sure you're confident that these arguments from Gilbert deserve the credit and signal boosting that you're giving them. In particular, I'm very concerned that someone like Gilbert, who clearly has an agenda that overruled his commitment to the truth in the case of Obama's parentage, is exactly the sort of person who might deceptively present evidence or even make it up from scratch. Let me just mention as an aside here uh, that what this writer is referring to is the fact that uh, Joel Gilbert, who is the director and producer of the Trayvon Hoax film, about which we're talking now, is also uh, the director and producer of a film called Dreams from My Real Father, which alleges that the paternity of Barack Hussein Obama, the first black president, is not as it has been presented to us in the large narrative that his father was a Kenyan national who came to the United States as a student, uh, met and uh, had a child with uh, Stanley Ann Dunham, who was Barack Obama's mother, uh, married but uh, betrayed the marriage and deserted uh, uh, Dunham and the young Obama early in his life. And that was a, a phenomenon that uh, wore on, that bore down on Obama throughout his life, the dreams from my father. Gilbert's film alleges that, in fact, Obama's real father uh, is uh, Frank Marshall Davis, a man who was a friend of the uh, Dunham family, a good friend of Obama's grandfather, of Obama's mother's father. And he claims that it was he who, in fact, um, uh, uh, was the father of uh, Barack Obama. Uh, and he develops that, uh, that uh, allegation. So in any case, our uh, fan who writes with his concern uh, says that uh, uh, clearly Gilbert has an agenda uh, he's exactly the sort of person who might deceptively present evidence to make it or even make it up from scratch. The fact that I continue with this comment as a way of prefacing our discussion, the fact that you both agree that Gilbert makes a credible case speaks strongly in favor of his credibility. On the other hand, his past track record of defending ideas that are clearly false, conspiracy theories, greatly undermines his credibility. If this is really a hoax, why didn't the mainstream journalists discover it like what happened with the UVA rape hoax? I'm not sure what to think about this, but I hope you haven't uh, staked your own credibility on something that might itself turn out to be a hoax. And if you have, I hope you'll be open to walking back your support for Gilbert in that event. Uh, best, and then it's signed by the name of the of the writer. Mm-hmm. So um, that's uh, I'm laying that out by way of introduction here, John. Uh, I'm turning the floor over to you. How would you respond to our professor, our associate professor of philosophy, and others who have yeah. uh, harbored similar concerns? 
Um, it's a very reasonable um, position to have. And I, for one, can say, as I know you would, that if this turns out to have been nonsense, if Gilbert really did make up this stuff, then I will be the first person to fall on my sword, openly admit it. I will not even pull the business of kind of never getting around to mentioning it or saying I could have been more careful. I will say I was wrong. Nevertheless, I think the, the nature of this evidence is such that it requires airing. I like that expression, the signal strengthening that he uses. This needs signal strengthening because the answer to his very reasonable question as to why nobody else has dug this up is because I think that the Trayvon case has taken on an iconic status beyond the UVA rape case. And I think that the typical mainstream journalist of whatever color wouldn't touch this. And so the unfortunate thing, the uncomfortable thing is that probably the only person who would look into this with clear eyes and really see the facts for what they were or weren't about this case is going to be somebody from quote unquote, the other side. And we can't control, you know, how genteel or, you know, how, you know, careful this person is in picking their friends. You know, we can't pick the perfect sober conservative who writes for first things or something like that. The chances it was going to be somebody like that were very small. It's going to be somebody a little more colorful than that. And so basically it comes down to, as you answered in your letter back to this person, we can't suppress this just because we don't love where everything about where the source comes from. We simply can't for the reason that the facts are so compelling. And Glenn, I want to insert something because it's not only comments, also Twitter, which, you know, I don't read closely, but I can't help but see things in the fire hose. I tweeted saying that Martin attacked Zimmerman and not vice versa. And there are some people who I think read the tweet rather than listening to our podcast, although one of them ought to be ashamed of themselves that they did listen to the podcast and still had the same objection. They're saying, are we actually claiming that essentially it was Martin driving around in a van or chasing a little man around the complex and Zimmerman is the victim. And, you know, I'm sure there are words for this in some languages, but frankly, why would we mean that? You know, even if you disagree with us, you know that we're not stupid. And a person like that hears me say this and says, yeah, that's what I wondered. To which my response is, no, that's just it. You shouldn't wonder. Why would our IQs drop to 30 all of a sudden? Clearly, we didn't mean that it was the reverse. I mean, this is the real world. I wonder what the word for that is in Dutch or something like that. We are the same people we always were. Nevertheless, it seems, I'm almost done. It seems based on the Gilbert account and their problems here, which we'll talk about. What happened was not that Zimmerman drove round and round and round and round and chased Trayvon Martin until it drove him crazy and he turned around and punched him because he was tired of being chased. From what Gilbert says, and there is transcript evidence to suggest that this is what happened, because we were given grievously edited versions of the police recordings. Zimmerman followed Martin for a bit. Then he stopped, and the police told him that you know, he did not need to follow him anymore, but Martin noticed that he was being followed for a bit. Then Zimmerman got out of the car and walked somewhat into the complex and looked around, standing still, to see if he could get a sense of where Martin had gone off to if the police needed that information. Upon which Martin jumped out from either behind something or out of the bushes and said, you got a problem? 
And Zimmerman said, no, I don't have a problem. He said, well, you got one now and proceeded to beat the hell out of him. This now, is Zimmerman, Zimmerman's account. Yeah, this is Zimmerman. And so what many people have said is that still Zimmerman started and certainly he did. I don't think either one of us deny that. We're not saying that Zimmerman did not start this and they're sinister. What's he doing with a gun in the first place? But it seems that it was not that Zimmerman trailed Martin for a long, long time. And there is no phone evidence suggesting him saying to anybody that that's what was going on. Rachel Gentel was coached about that and made it up. So it's just different than what we've been told. Yes, Zimmerman pursued him, but briefly. What he was jumped for was standing still and just turning his head round and round. I just wanted to get that. Um, no problem. Um, I think we should have said here, for those who didn't see part one of this conversation, that what Gilbert alleges to have been a hoax, the filmmaker Joel Gilbert in his uh, film, The Trayvon Hoax, what he alleges to have been a hoax is that Rachel Gentel, uh, the woman who testified at the George Zimmerman trial, and who presented herself as Trayvon Martin's friend on the phone with him moments before he was shot, was in fact not the person who was actually on the phone with him moments before he was shot, but was substituted for the real friend on the phone with Trayvon Martin uh, for the convenience of the uh, prosecution uh, and whose uh, testimony was critical, both uh, in the case that was brought against George Zimmerman, but also, and perhaps more importantly, in the uh, pretrial uh, publicity campaign to get George Zimmerman charged in the first place. The authorities had thought on the basis of the evidence before them that Zimmerman had acted clearly in self-defense and they weren't going to bring charges. But a campaign was mounted uh, to uh, coerce the authorities into charging George Zimmerman. Yet another white man kills an unarmed black man and walks free was the narrative. So, the uh, allegation of the hoax is a claim about the representatives of the Trayvon Martin family and the prosecution, uh, in effect, lying to the American public by presenting someone whom they had every reason to know, must have known, was not, in fact, the person who they represented her as having been. And she testified under oath to events that, in fact, she was not privy to and perhaps, uh, therefore, was guilty of perjury. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, to be able to say, and the prosecutors and the family's attorney guilty of suborning perjury, if this is true. So among the criticisms that people raise are uh, the unsavory character of Joel Gilbert. Uh, I want everybody to know that I was completely aware of the fact that he had made the film Dreams from My Father and was very disturbed by the thesis of that film. Don't know whether that's true. understand that it has a very conspiratorial sound to it. Not saying that I believe it. I don't believe that Obama's father was, in fact, this man. I don't know who Obama's father was, but as Hillary Clinton once famously mm-hmm. said, I'm prepared to take the former president's word for <laughs> him. <laughs> but I saw this particular film, and I was struck by how compelling it was. How do I know he didn't make it all up? Well, uh, the bulk of his case is based on public documents. Uh, the records of uh, telephone uh, calls, text messages, and Instagram exchanges of uh, one Trayvon Martin. Uh, the uh, uh, information that's in the yearbook of the high school graduating classes and inf- information that can be gleaned by interviewing people who were, um, who were uh, uh, privy to uh, the nature of Trayvon's life and the nature of his relationships. Uh, so if false, it won't be hard to demonstrate 
that Gilbert has misstated or omitted because most of the argument that he makes is based upon documents that are publicly available to everybody as to why wouldn't the mainstream press have taken it up? You're kidding, right? That's not a serious question, right? We know that once a narrative of this sort gets going, um, being the kind of person who wants to push back against that narrative can have real effects on one's career. Now, if one is already in the fever, so-called fever swamps, if one is already on the right of Fox News devotee, a frequent guest on the Alex Jones show, uh, et cetera, if, if, if one is writing for uh, American greatness or uh, other such right-wing uh, websites, one has nothing to lose by mm-hmm. pushing against the narrative. And therefore, you should expect that every pushback against a dominant narrative, Michael Brown had both hands up, hands up, don't shoot, is likely first to be located in the so-called fever swamps of the right because respectable people don't want the repu- like me, don't want our reputations to be besmirched by giving credence to something that runs counter to the narrative. Against that, I ask you, please, to set the alternative, which is believe everything that comes to me over MSNBC and that comes to me by virtue of the likes of an Al Sharpton or a Benjamin Crump. Simply accept the social justice warriors uh, narrative about what goes on in ambiguous circumstances where the facts are difficult to know or believe the uh, reports of a grand jury that spends months investigating all of the details of the facts, as happened in the case of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, or as an effect happened in the case of uh, George Zimmerman, because there was a jury that sat in his trial and acquitted him. And there was also the decision by the federal government not to bring charges against Zimmerman uh, for civil rights violation after they looked into the matter because the facts and the evidence didn't support it. So I can only say in my own defense about why I would even entertain discussing something from a guy like Joe Gilbert is that I don't base what I believe or what I think on the, on, on the ground solely of the source from which it has come. I use my own mind and I try to assess the evidence. And if true, and it can be proven false and will be proven false if it can be proven false now, because a large lawsuit has been brought against people who will have to defend themselves or who will have to seek motions to dismiss. And evidence will have to be presented before a court, before a judge is willing to dismiss um, a suit of this kind. Uh, the reason that I would believe it is because it was plausible. I didn't say I believed it. I meant this. I didn't mean to say I believed it. Even I would take it seriously. The reason I would consider that it might be true. The reason that I'd be prepared to uh, speculate about, well, if this is true, then what else might we be thinking that is uh, so that turns out not to be so upon investigation Um, is because I'm trying to stay in touch with reality, trying not to slip into this posture where uh, I don't believe anything unless it comes from sources that are already to be on my side politically, because I think that's a very, very bad place to be. I think. Let me segue into something along those lines, then, please. You know, because you know, there's a certain kind of person whose you know thesis is just going to be racism was what that trial was all about, and that's it. We're never going to reach that person. I'm going to say that's maybe ten percent of the people who are listening to us. If you're that kind, you might as well just turn this off. Well, but they've already the turned who, it off, John. Yeah, they didn't even listen. If you're not in that ten percent, how about you know what Florida media did to the police transcript? So here, right now is what became an iconic exchange. I'm doing what you do, Glenn, and I'm breaking the fourth wall by looking at my screen. I always feel like we're not supposed to do it, but if you do it, and besides nobody's watching anymore anyway. So I am looking at my computer because of something that I wrote down. This is from the book. 
So um, I'm going to read what now there are people who could practically recite. When there's a play about this, I'm sure there have already been plays about this. This, these, this exchange between Zimmerman and the police was in the lines. I'm going to give Zimmerman a slightly higher voice than the policeman instead of keeping on saying Zimmerman police, Zimmerman police. Okay. Zimmerman is here. The police are here. This is the standard exchange. This guy looks like he's up to no good. He looks black. Did you see what he was wearing? Yeah, a dark hoodie. Are you following him? Yeah. Okay, we don't need you to do that. And then we're told that he got out of the car anyway. That's not what happened, because Gilbert has the full transcript. Now, if anybody can prove that Gilbert made this up, that this recording is something that Gilbert came up with in the studio or something like that, please tell us, because maybe that's what happened, but I doubt it. Here is the unedited exchange of what happened between those two people. Same voices. This guy looks like he's up to no good, or he's on drugs or something. It's raining, and he's just walking around looking about. Now, this is me speaking. Notice, that was part of why Zimmerman was interested, too. It wasn't just that he was black. It was that it was raining, and for some reason, Martin was just kind of hovering and didn't seem to be in a hurry to get out of the rain. We'll never know why, but that, too. Anyway, Zimmerman says, He's just walking around, looking about. Okay, and this guy, is he black, white, or Hispanic? He looks black. So Zimmerman did not say, this guy looks like he's up to no good. He looks black, which has made him, this Latino guy, a racist forever. Rather, it was all broken up. Okay, and this guy, is he black, white, or Hispanic? He looks black. Did you see what he was wearing? Yeah, a dark hoodie, like a gray hoodie. He wore jeans or sweatpants and white tennis shoes. In other words, this is me speaking. It wasn't just the hoodie. It wasn't Zimmerman for some reason thought of somebody wearing a hoodie as a thug. He described a lot of his clothes. The hoodie is just what we heard in that transcript. Yeah, dark hoodie, like a gray hoodie. He wore jeans or sweatpants and white tennis shoes. Are you following him? Yeah. Okay. We don't need you to do that. Okay, is what Zimmerman said. The television stations cut off the okay. Zimmerman did not just jump out of the car and start following him. He went up onto the curb, walked a little bit into the complex, just looking to see where the man had gone. He didn't keep running after him, you know, with his gun held out or something like that. So it's a different scene than what we've heard. And what a lot of us imagine, including me until about 10 minutes ago, is based on a grievously edited version of the transcript. And there's a mental, and somebody likes me using this word, I'm going to use it again, equipoise that we must maintain here, which is, to be able to separate our hearts from our head. I started to write a piece about this. I said, um, here it is. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. I said, um, here we go. There are always people arguing that America would have no race problem if certain types didn't keep stirring it up. And Gilbert is one of them of what would appear to be a near obsessive strike. The amount of not only pouring through phone records and yearbooks, but subterfuges and sheer shoe leather involved in this man's unearthing of these facts about obscure, uncelebrated black kids and their parents minding their business in Florida seven years ago is, in itself, rather staggering. I get the feeling those words will only be heard here. Nobody's going to publish it. But this man being is, Joe Gilbert, just to, just to yes. make sure. Mm-hmm. Right. So anyway. Yes, all of that is true. That is how I feel about reading about all this work. Nevertheless, that transcript is not a lie, and it creates a different picture from what we've been told about what, for example, George Zimmerman was like. Anyway, Glenn, your turn. 
No, you're just saying uh, you object to having uh, the wool pulled over your eyes. Uh, you, you, when you saw the full transcript, you realized the story yeah. was rather different than the one that uh, had been put in front of us. And it should be pointed out that um, Trayvon Martin is killed at the end of February 2012. That's before Michael Brown. Okay, Michael Brown comes after that. Ferguson, Missouri comes after that. Black Lives Matter come after that. Um, the the uh, killing of Trayvon Martin and the uh, uh, characterization of George Zimmerman in the unflattering terms that you've alluded to uh, was the forerunner of a larger dynamic in American political culture uh, having to do with um, open season, as Benjamin Trump calls it in his new book, open season on unarmed black uh, youths. It, uh, that narrative uh, got filtered through a number of specific instances, Tamir Rice being shot by police at the age of 12 years old with a toy gun in his hand in a park in Cleveland, uh, Eric Garner being choked to death by a police officer when he resisted arrest, selling loose cigarettes outside of a uh, convenience store in Staten Island, um, and many other John, specific okay. John, no, Crawford, John Crawford gets shot to death at a Walmart for holding up a toy gun, Philando Castile reaches for his wallet when stopped in a car and gets shot dead because somebody thinks that he's reaching for his gun. They go on and on, yeah. Walter Scott shot in the back by a South right. Carolina police officer unarmed while he was fleeing. It's running, and there's film of it, right, exactly. So so um, the, the, the political consequences of these events and the way in which a larger narrative about American society, a narrative so powerful that it would drive Colin Kaepernick, for example, to take a knee rather than to stand during the national anthem at a football game because he doesn't want to salute the flag. I don't quote him exactly, but I quote him approximately of a country that where young black men are being gunned down by police uh, at will. Uh, and the, the question is whether or not whatever the larger judgment we might make about the need for social justice reform, the bringing of such arguments rooted in an interpretation of facts that turns out to be faulty can be justified. Now, there are people who will argue that for the sake of the larger benefit, we know that there's injustice in America. We know the police are off the chain in many black communities. We know that uh, black people are racially profiled in department stores and neighborhoods and so forth and so on. We know that there's structural racism. We know that there's mass incarceration. We know that there are militarized police. We know that there's too much of a, uh, the raising of uh, funds by local authorities by imposing fines on poor black people who have barely have the ability to pay for it, et cetera, et cetera. We know that there are racist cops out there. Because these things are true, if an event comes along which can be massaged in such a manner as to further our campaign against them, then we should get behind that interpretation regardless of the facts. I, that much has actually been said to me. Who cares what the facts are, I've been told. We know what the larger justice questions are. If George Zimmerman hadn't gotten out of that vehicle, Trayvon Martin would still be alive. Trayvon Martin is dead, and George Zimmerman is a bad person. And you know why he got out of that vehicle? Because of race, because of racism, because of racial profiling, because of racial stereotypes. Members of the U.S. Congress, at least Bobby Rush, one member, actually appeared on the floor of the House of Representatives wearing a hoodie underneath his suit. He pulls the hood of the hoodie up as he's making his speech. This is theater, theater in the service of what? In the service <laughs> of a narrative about the conditions of black people, et cetera. So we're trying to stay in touch with reality. Joel Gilbert, well, might be a bad person. I don't know him personally. I accept the characterization that he's engaged in certain, you know, uh, projects that are, uh, you know, like the uh, dreams for my real father that are 
conspiracy conspiracy theory esque. They could well be conspiracy theories. I frankly don't know the truth or falsity of his claims about Obama's paternity, but as I say, I'm prepared to take the president's word for it. Okay. And uh, but 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 to say there's nothing that could appear on Fox News that I'll ever treat seriously. When I know that the press are partisan, I mean, the rational response to living in a world in which there is increasing polarization and partisanship and reportage from news sources who have agendas is to avail oneself of a wide range of reports and to try to figure out on the basis of what's being said from all quarters what it is that makes most sense to believe. It's not to shut down everything that comes out of anybody who might have been a Trump supporter uh, pre, preempt, uh, preemptively uh, on the claim that, well, we know what their motives are. Therefore, we know that anything they say must be in the service of those motives. And since their motives are not our motives, uh, we're, ch- we're changing the channel. Anyway, yeah. that's what or, I was. Or how about this? Which we are taught to suspend logic when it comes to these race cases. And even I am guilty of it sometimes, but we need to dig a little bit here. George Zimmerman sees a black boy kind of wandering through this complex. He wasn't targetedly walking home with his Skittles. It was raining. It's kind of wandering. The truth is, why do I suddenly sound like I'm a 14-year-old boy? The truth is that he was um, smoking a little something, which is just fine. We don't hear about that part. But he wasn't just marching on his way home. That's your surmise. That's your surmise, right? I mean, we don't no, have evidence said, that he was. Do we have evidence that he was? He says that um, he had like a blunt on him in in the book. Do you, do, uh, does that yeah. not come up I, in the film? I, I don't remember that. I, I don't say it does or it doesn't. I'm asking. I could be wrong, but a blunt is involved in this somehow, and that's you know fine, Trayvon, great, but it okay. means that he was you know, not in a hurry for some reason. Right. And Zimmerman sees him. And we think, well, he's just singling him out because he's black. If there had been a white, you know, boy walking through, he wouldn't have turned his head. Now, all of us know deep down that Zimmerman may have had a reason for thinking that a black boy was more likely to be a thief in that neighborhood than a white boy. May, you know, very few people live in Sanford, Florida, but all of us are thinking there may have been some reason. And as it turns out, let's try this. If there had been a spate of people putting nooses on doorknobs in that complex, and black people are scared, and, you know, there are these white hooligans. Oh, we would have heard all about that. But what we don't hear is that at that time, there had been a spate of robberies in that neighborhood, perpetrated, for whatever it's worth, by young black men. And so Zimmerman singled out Trayvon Martin, not simply because he thinks black people are apes, but because black men are the ones who had been doing the stealing. Now, the sensible part of us thinks, why would he not see skin color is a distinguishing trait and be at least suspicious under those conditions. But the other part of us, we're, we're, we're encouraged to use this kind of reptilian brain when it comes to thinking about these things. We're supposed to think, no, even if he knew that there had been a state of black men robbing people in the complex, he's still supposed to be no more suspicious of this boy kind of wandering his way through those sidewalks than he would be of a white boy or a Korean grandmother. That is shit. That is absolute shit. It's shit that we haven't been told that there was a spate of robberies in that complex at that very time. And it's not fair to Zimmerman to assume 
that he was, he, a Latino, he was not white, he was very much a Latino, he is bilingual, was just a, a bigot. Now, I have to say, finally, yes, folks, I know he had a gun. He shouldn't have had a gun. What was he doing with a gun? You know, the whole thing, I hate to say should, but it should have ended with him getting, you know, the shit beaten out of him. And that's the way it would have ended. And then we could talk about whether that was just or not. Why do you have a gun? But the fact that he had a gun does not eliminate the logic in everything that I just said. We have to look at these things with our brains. And we're taught that when it comes to race, we're just supposed to look at these things with our gallbladders. And it doesn't work for anybody. Okay, I want to respond more broadly, but first I just want to ask you a question about the gun. Suppose we were in inner city Baltimore or St. Louis or Chicago. Suppose the person who's the neighborhood watch person or the building superintendent or the security uh, guy around the shopping mall is black. Is it okay for him to carry a gun where the homicide rate is off the charts and where we know that there are bad actors cruising the streets, people getting carjacked and mugged and uh, so forth and so on? So if Zimmerman can't arm himself under those circumstances, how can a person living in a dangerous neighborhood who is an African-American, Philando Castile, who was shot dead in Minnesota, and he was shot with a gun. He had a permit for the gun. He was trying to explain to the police officer that he was licensed to carry the gun. Police officer shot him dead before he ever had a chance to explain himself, but he was entitled to carry that gun. Likewise, you might get mad at me, but, I mean, I'm just telling you, man. Uh, (laughs) If I were out there at midnight trying to figure out who suspicious was uh, going around my neighborhood, I might well learn how to uh, fire a firearm, get the necessary permit, and uh, carry one myself. But it's true. If George Zimmerman had stayed in that vehicle, Trayvon Martin would still be alive. That's true. It is. I want to point out, by the way, that you and I, John, have been at this thing here commenting at bloggingheads.tv for a year or two or three or ten. In fact, we were doing it when these events transpired in February of, in March of 2012. Did we talk about this? Yes, John. And we bought the line hook, line and sinker. We were both yeah, right. at the right. outrage of an innocent young black man being <clears throat> in the street. Yeah. Both of I'm us. I'm glad you pointed that out. We were yeah. on board with the narrative because what else could you do? I mean, you're, you're in the influence of the information that is available to you. It's only with the benefit of hindsight that we come to be concerned that what uh, the line that we were fed might not have been what actually happened. And I, for one, just can't let go of the idea that I'm not going to believe something and foster a belief if I know it to be false, I have reason to think it false, simply because it's convenient to a political stance that I want to take. That way lies uh, collective madness for us as a society. Remember, so, it's also it's also a psychological and emotional stance. Many people derive a comfort from this victim position, and they don't want to give that up, and that's a lot of the anger. But anyway, go ahead. You said you've been paying attention to Twitter. I haven't. I've been afraid, but I have been looking at the comments. I've been afraid (laughs) to look at Twitter. I have been looking at the comments, because people are unrestrained out there, and uh, a few of them are viciously uh, critical of us as uh, Uncle Tom's sellout, uh, you know, uh, been in the white world too long, uh, don't we realize, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And Malachi. I have to say, if, 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 your, if your goal is to shut me up, that ain't going to work, okay? That's going to have the opposite effect. I'm not afraid of you, okay? Now, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, if I'm proven wrong, I will admit that I'm wrong. I will apologize for being wrong. But I'll be damned if I'm going to be intimidated and cajoled and coerced into shutting up 
about what I think is going on in my society because some people think a black man is not supposed to talk that way. They can uh, kiss my derriere. You know, That's my response. I'm glad you said that because I don't usually air that in public, but over the past about six months, it's occurred to me that since I could have a heart attack tomorrow, I want to get it out there too. The kinds of people who call us those sorts of names, which I think of as kind of the most primitive of our detractors, I think a lot of them actually think that they are, yeah, they're going to scare us into not talking. And I want people to know that when I started doing this, I was in my mid-30s. I was, you know, the fair-haired boy, and I think a lot of people thought because of that. And also I have a big face and big eyes, and you kind of think that because I don't talk like you that I can't fight, that I'm going to just kind of cower and go away. No, I'm not going away. And I want a lot of those people to know, I've been doing this for 20 fucking years at this point, and I am still here. The people who were yelling at me in 2000, 2004, I am still here, and I'm going to stay here. And a lot of people have disappeared who do what I do, and I'm still here. So all those people who are going to call us all these names and all that rhetoric, etc. Nowadays, I just read right past it, but you're, you're, you're reminding me. They should know that you can scream all you want. You, you, you All the names that you use, you can come up with new ones because the fashions change about every five years. White supremacists, that's, you know, that's a new one. Go ahead. Have fun. Have fun with each other. But be under no illusion that I'm going to read something like that and think, oh, dear, I better shut up. No. What you write will not matter to me at all. And when you wake up the next day, I will still be there. And when you're gone, I will still be here. And so will Glenn. Yeah, I want to get that out. It's the last time I'm ever going to say anything like that today. <laughs> uh, well, John, for part two, I think that suits as well as... A no, it isn't. No, one more thing. Okay, more. well, you can have the last word in any case. I want to know what you think of this. Okay. The one thing that I don't get about Gilbert's case, why was Trayvon so mad? I mean, this is where we would end up falling on our swords. And so... If Zimmerman is standing there just kind of looking around, why does Trayvon jump out of the bushes and practically beat him to death as opposed to maybe just socking him across the jaw? That doesn't quite cohere. And Gilbert says that it's because Trayvon's mad at Zimmerman for snitching. But the snitching is an intra-community thing. That's, you wouldn't be mad at him for that. And it isn't that Trayvon was so high or anything like that. That wasn't found in his blood. What made him that mad? Now, back in the day, we thought that it was a Zimmerman had walked up and grabbed him by the elbow and said, what are you doing here? Even there, it was a little odd that he was that mad. But now there really is that little hair out of place. And I think we should acknowledge that. Well, I can't answer that. I, I can speculate about it. Uh, Trayvon Martin, a young black man, he will not have been the first time that he had uh, been profiled or felt that he was profiled. Probably not, yeah. According to the girlfriend on the phone with him, he's uh, reported to have said something like he was being followed by a white cracker. I believe that phrase, so she's, uh, uh, Rachel Gentrell, when she gave the testimony, asked, she said, excuse my language, cracker, she referred to him. So I can imagine a young uh, Trayvon Martin, who you get to know through Gilbert's reporting, is you know, a guy that uh, he's a player, he's uh, he's active in his social life. He's uh, He's got some uh, re- relatively unsavory uh, connections. He's interested in uh, martial arts and fighting and in weapons and, you know, and, and hanging out and whatnot. And maybe in that social milieu, the idea of a white guy, he goes out to uh, suburban Orlando. He goes to Sanford, Florida uh, from Miami, which is where he's from. He's been suspended uh, from school for 10 days and he's spending that time with his father uh, at his father's fiance's place in Sanford, California, uh, Sanford, Florida, before this event. 
And uh, he may think of that community as some kind of gentrified, you know, mostly white kind of place where a guy like him off the streets of Miami is not kind of out of place, is going to be viewed with suspicion. And so he just got his back up, got pissed off. Who are you, you little white-ass cracker following me around here? All I'm doing is smoking a blunt. What, you want something? You got a problem now. You weren't looking for trouble when you got trouble, nigga, like that. Right. I, I mean, I don't regard that as particularly uh, unusual behavior for an African-American youngster from an urban community who might find himself in a white suburban enclave and might think that he's fallen under inappropriate suspicion. Uh, so that's, that's all I can come up with. According to Zimmerman, like- he was beating the crap out of them. His head was bumped. Zimmerman's head was bouncing off of the sidewalk. Yeah. Uh, Martin had uh, the better of him, and there was a pound and ground thing that was going on. But notice that in the trial, much of the argument turned on whether or not the voice crying out for help, which is recorded right. on somebody's cell phone, is George Zimmerman's voice or it's Trayvon Martin's voice. The parents were called as witnesses, and Martin's parents said, no, that's the our mother's voice. And yeah. Zimmerman's mother says, no, 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 that's my son's voice. <laughs> and so, it's, um, it's, it's, it's Zimmerman. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact is it's Zimmerman yelling for help. And I'll bet if you or I could hear that tape, you'd know instantly whether it's this, you know, Latino man or it's this black teenager. They probably have very different voices. And it, it would be clear that it's not Trayvon Martin yelling for help. Yeah, that's a... I'll just say this, man, because you're always talking about the anecdotes. I had a Facebook friend who was African-American. And during the height of this thing, she uh, posted, uh, I hope Trayvon was beating the crap out of George Zimmerman. Yeah, a lot of people thought Okay, so she's accepting Zimmerman's claim that he was on the bottom of that thing and hoping that Trayvon was getting the better of him in the fight, but still wants to see Zimmerman walk. (laughs) And when I said, that's crazy, that's crazy. Why would you hope that? Uh, It's it's inconsistent with your legal argument that Trayvon Martin was being victimized in this situation. She unfriended me. Oh. (laughs) <laughs> she got Jesus. the better of me by canceling me out. I no longer had that connection. And I, I guess thank you decided to no longer write or speak. That's what these people can do to you. So John but. is late and thrown down the gauntlet. He says, y'all can unfriend us if you want to, but we'll still be here. And I'm with him 100% on that. Thanks for coming right. on the Glenn Show, John. Thank you, Glenn.